In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, 
I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. 
Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So, Father, we come to your word now, and uh, it's a pretty incredible word. I pray that you'll help us to hear what it is that you are saying, the encouragement that you intended to give both to Daniel and those living in those days, and the encouragement you intend for us today. Thank you that there is a God in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The world in which we live is full of conflicts and contests. And much of the book of Daniel is about conflicts and contests. Some of those uh, conflicts that we enter into uh, in our daily lives or our weekly lives are pretty insignificant, and by the end of the week, we've forgotten about most of it. Others of those context, contests are life and death, heaven and hell sort of contests. When I think of Moses and Pharaoh, as uh, Moses stood before Pharaoh and contested before him for the people of God, you might think of Joshua and the people as they're about to enter into the land of Canaan, and Joshua is contesting for the one true God. You might think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal as together they are wondering if the God of heaven or the God of Baals can answer by fire from heaven. We have these sorts of contests all through the Bible, but again, specifically in the book of Daniel. There's two that I hope you will think about and I can highlight for you as we go through this. The first is a contest or a conflict about revelation. Is there more than human reason to help us through life? Is there access to wisdom and understanding and revelation that is beyond human ability and even what we might say human reason, although not apart from human reason? And the second is there is a conflict between two kingdoms, between the kingdoms of men and women, human kingdoms, and between the kingdom of God. Those conflicts are woven throughout the context of Daniel chapter 2 this morning. I just want to dive right in and try and make my way through this at a fair pace, but also not missing some of the things that I think are important. The first is simply the first 13 verses of chapter 2, where we have there uh, just an understanding that Babylon is not the friendliest place in the world. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. He was troubled. He was not a happy camper. He was tired. He was exhausted. He wasn't sleeping. And this is not a great place to try and figure out anything in a person's life. I think we understand that there is often a trickle-down effect that comes from those that are above us, whether it be rulers or political people or even people in our home. And if they've had a few bad nights and if they're suffering from insecurity and, and uh, insanity that comes with power, then we might feel the effects of that. You think of Esther. Esther... Uh, the story of Esther talks about a situation in which they had just made a decree that every single Jew in the whole kingdom was to be slaughtered on a certain day. And it says at the end of that decree that the king and Haman went in and drank and had a good night, and the whole of Susa was troubled. You read of King Herod as King Herod was holding court one day, and a few wise men came from Babylon and came from the east and inquired of the king where this new king was to be born. And Herod was very insecure, and he was insane, I believe, in a certain extent. And it said, and the king was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. 
And you know the story that how the king, not too long after that, went and ordered the death of every baby boy two years old and younger. And so it's not a great reality to be in when one in power is tired, afraid, and insecure. We find that things escalate in a hurry when these wise men ask the king to tell them the dream that, uh, or ask the king first to say, well, tell me the dream you had and we'll give you its interpretation. And the king raises the stakes and he says, well, no, it's more than that. He says, I want you to both tell me my dream and its interpretation because I don't trust you guys. Whether he had a sense that they had been deceiving him, whether he had a wondering if his gods were really all that powerful, in the end of the day, his request, though, seems increasingly unreasonable. But his offer to them was a fairly black and white one. He says, by the way, if you can tell me my dream and its interpretation, you will be rewarded such to the point that you will never have another worry in the world. If you can't tell me my dream and its interpretation, you will never have another worry in the world. It was a fairly clear reward punishment that the king gave to them. The tension is palatable. Oh, king, tell us your dream and we will give you its interpretation. We have the books. We have the omens. We have the, the ways that we can describe to you what your dream is and tell you what it means. The king says, you're just trying to buy time. You really don't know what you're talking about. You're, you've agreed to deceive me. I want to know the dream and its interpretation. And then this significant verse. If you underline stuff in your Bible, these are the kinds of things I would underline. Verses 10 and 11. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods. And then this, whose dwelling is not with flesh. It's a stunning admission. It's an admission of the failure of paganism. It's an admission of the limits of human ability to solve problems. It's an admission that they do not have contact with the gods because the gods live way up there and never come down here. As a side note, isn't that in complete contrast to what our God has done in the Incarnation? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. The Word came down from heaven. God came down from heaven to mankind and revealed to us our need, our solution, and gave us hope. These individuals, though, were clearly admitting that what the king was asking them was beyond any human ability. It was beyond what any king had ever asked before. It was information that if there were gods, only the gods could give. I find this to be entirely relevant in the world in which we live today. Because we live in a world in which every problem can be solved by human reason. And if it can't, it's beyond our ability to know the answer to it. And to have a faith in God is just as relevant today as it was in 500 B.C. What they were saying simply to the king was there is no revelation from the gods. Verse 13 is rather significant because it says there simply that the king lost it. It says he became angry. In fact, he became very furious, and he commanded that every single one of them be put to death. This world is not a friendly place, and I don't want to make a point out of nothing, but I do realize that the world is not your friend 
evil is not your friend. It will demand more and more from you to the point where it will demand your life. And you are unable in your own power and ability to pay its demands. And that's where we need Christ. Christ who has paid the price of the demands of the world and of the flesh and has given us life. In Babylon, then, we realize that there is much fear, a great deal of helplessness, and even a tinge of brutality. There are lots of Nebuchadnezzars in our world. Some of you may know a few. You might work for them. They might live in your house. They are troubled. They are insecure. Their demands are sometimes irrational. They are afraid. They are angry. They want answers to questions which nobody around them seems to be able to give. Do we have anything to offer them? We come to the next section in Daniel, Daniel chapter, or Daniel verses 14 to 24, and there's a marked contrast between the chaos and the confusion of the first 13 verses and the calm of the next 10 verses. We find in here something has changed about the atmosphere and the attitude even of the text. I think some of you know what I'm talking about. You can be in situations, and some people are just out of control. They've lost it. They're confused. They're making unreasonable demands. And somebody steps into that situation and just brings calm and settles the situation down and brings peace and order to it. You find that's what takes place in Daniel chapter 2, verses 14 to 24. And there's two things that I think account for this. One is just the language of those verses. The word then is repeated four or five times. I've underlined every one of them. And it just signals as you begin to read that there's order. There's an approach. There's calm. There's wisdom here. Then Daniel says, what's the matter? Then Daniel goes to the king. Then Daniel goes to prayer. Then Daniel praises God. Then Daniel goes back to the king. There's a sense of calm that is brought into the situation. But if you mark your Bible again, mark how many times a reference to God is made. There's only a reference to the gods in the first 13 verses. Here we find reference after reference to the God of heaven, the God of heaven, the God of gods, the God, the King of kings. There's a sense that, that when one is um, embraced and living under and living with the truth and the reality that there is a God in heaven, that one's view of the world changes dramatically. And I wonder, in part, as you think about Daniel, some of the other reasons maybe why there's such calm. It first of all tells us that Daniel's ac actions were characterized by prudence and discretion or tact and wisdom. Daniel was a man who just was in control of himself. And he was in control of himself because he knew the God who was in control of all things. And so he goes about in a very careful, very tactful way to deal with the situation. He doesn't run from the problem. He goes right to it. I would imagine that Arioch had first come to him because he was going to kill Daniel. He was going to round him up, and he was going to kill him. And Daniel says, well, wait a minute. What's going on here? Why the urgency? What's the death threat for? And so Arioch tells him. And then Daniel says, well, listen, then take me to the king. Let me talk with the king. And notice Daniel doesn't even impose his own agenda on the king. He says to the king, you give me a time, king and I will come back with the interpretation. That leads us to the second thing about Daniel that we see here is that not only was he a man of tact and wisdom, he was a man of faith. He knew 
the ability and the power and the might of the God of heaven. King, you give me a time, I'll come back with the interpretation. That is stepping out on a line. The third thing that we see about Daniel is that he was a man of prayer. He says, let's seek the God of mercy. He rounds up his buddies, and I don't think that there is a lonelier place in the world than to go through the world without good Christian friends. I think every single person here, to the best of your ability, ought to try and get into your life two or three people that you can, in a time of need, call and say, will you pray with me about this? I don't care how old you are. Um, I think it matters that we have Christian friends. And he calls them together, and he says, let's seek the God of mercy. I was thinking of this. Um, as some of you know, I think of songs all the time, and the song that kept going through my head here was Knock, Knock, Knocking on Heaven's Door. And I wonder if Daniel maybe um, knew something of that. He knew that there was a God and that, that God was not silent. Fourth is Daniel had confidence in the God of heaven. Daniel had confidence that the God of heaven impacts life on earth. That God knew the mystery behind Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation. And all that was foreign to Nebuchadnezzar, all his fear about his gods, Daniel knew that, yes, there was no gods on earth. There was no human reason that could answer the king's question, but there was a God in heaven. He says, I know a God in heaven who can reveal this. Verses 18 to 19 really take us off guard with their simplicity and with their starkness. It simply says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel. I don't know how. The text really doesn't tell us. It just says the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. What a difference between Daniel and the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans seem to be scurrying about, what do we do? What do we do? How can we get the king to tell us a dream? Where, do we, where are we going to figure this out? How are we going to help him know? And Daniel just says, give me a night and I'll pray about it. What a difference your king makes. I think before we move on, it's, it's important, and I'll just leave this to you for you to think about, but I really hope you'll think about Daniel's understanding of prayer, about Daniel's response to the God to whom he prays, and about Daniel's moment of thanksgiving. He pauses to praise God before he leaves his prayer room before he goes to the king, before he goes back and tells him what God has revealed. He just stops and he praises God. I sometimes wonder why I don't give thanks to God more. You know, we seem to rush into God's presence with all our prayers and with all our requests. And sometimes we, we, we get the calm and the peace right away. Sometimes it comes later, but we just forget to give God thanks or praise. I'm amazed that Daniel here stopped, and before everything else, he gave God thanks and praise. And I wonder if this tempered Daniel's human tendency to take credit before the king. Because you notice, I think every one of us, when something brilliant has come to us, and we have to give a report at school or a hand in a, uh, something on our workplace or whatever. There's a, the way in which we slant it so we get a little bit of credit for what we've figured out. Daniel does none of that. How easy it would have been for him to just slant the words just a touch so that the king might have looked at Daniel and said, oh, you're pretty smart. Because you notice what Arioch does. Arioch goes to the king and says, he rushed into the king's presence and he says, I have found a man. 
Well, Arioch hadn't found Daniel. Daniel had gone and pursued him. But Daniel doesn't take any credit himself. I thought about this quite a bit. Do I have confidence in my God to answer or say, I will seek an answer for the problems of the people around me who don't know God? If my neighbor or my boss or my friend came to me and said, Paul, I am at my wit's end. I've tried everything and I don't know what to do. Would I have the courage to say to them, give me a couple days. I'll come back and tell you what I think might help. And then go and cry out before the God of heaven who reveals mysteries of man. Come back and say, you know what? I couldn't figure this out, but I was just praying. I wonder, would this help? Do we have the confidence in our God to do those sorts of things? The third thing that we see in this text is verses 25 to 30, and it's Daniel's initial response to the king after his praise to God. He comes before the king, and I I hope you get a sense of the intimidation that must have been here. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man that had ever lived and likely that has ever lived in the history of mankind. The opulence of um, Babylon, you can go to uh, museums around the world and see artifacts and see um, drawings and see actual re-representations of some of the stuff they have dug up from the kingdom. The throne room of of, of the king must have been like no other room that most of us will ever see in our lives. It is said that beside, on either side of his throne, there was a live lion chained to give a sense of power and might and strength. And here is Daniel, a young man, maybe 20 years old now, standing before the king. And the king says, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? It's an amazing question from the most powerful man on the earth. And Daniel, at that point, could have done a lot of things, but again, with his wisdom and with his tact, with his humility and with his honesty, he first says, well, king, what you asked is impossible. Your Chaldeans were right. There is no man on earth who could tell you your dream and its interpretation. That is amazing to me. He could have thrown those guys under the bus and said, King, they are a bunch of idiots. They got no brains. I don't know why you've got them working for you. Because I've got an inside tract on things. But he shows compassion to them. And he admits the truth. There is no man who could show the king his dream and his interpretation. But notice, would you... and. Again, if you underline stuff, verse 28 is something to underline. But there is a God in heaven. I thought about this. Would we benefit from having those words on the dash of our car, on the front of our science textbook, on the mirror in our bathroom, on our desk at work? 
to remind us in the midst of the world in which we live, where everybody says there is no God, where everybody says human reason is all there is, where everybody says if man can't solve it, nobody can solve it. And we remind ourselves, but there is a God in heaven. And Daniel says to the king, you're right, there is no man, but there is a God in heaven who has made this known. He reveals mysteries. And he has made known to you what will be in the latter days and what is to be. It's an amazing statement about our God, loved ones, about his power and about his might, about his knowledge, about his wisdom. Daniel says he reveals faraway things. By that, he reveals the future. What is to be and what will be in the latter days. I didn't count myself, but I took the word of one commentator who said there are 30 verbs in chapter 2 that are related to revealing, showing, and making known. Do you think there's a point that God is trying to get across in this text to us? I think the point is that God is a God who reveals, knows, declares, shows the future. That he is a God who reveals mysteries that man cannot reveal. So what does this tell you about God? About your present and about your future? The fact that God knows every detail about the future, what is even in the darkness, Daniel confesses, does not always mean that he reveals it to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a great verse. It says, the secret things of the Lord belong to God, um, but um, other things he reveals to man. There is things that God, well, obviously God knows everything about the future, but he doesn't reveal everything about the future to us, just enough to give us confidence that God is taking this world in a certain direction. And then it says he also reveals the hidden things. At the end in verse 28, it says, that the king might be able to know the thoughts of his mind. I thought about that a little bit. The thoughts of your mind. When you are afraid, when you are anxious, when you are worried, when you are confused, when your thoughts scare you. Don't convince yourself that you can hide these from God or that you should hide them from God. Rather say, God, you know the thoughts in my head. You know where they come from. You know how to give me peace. Please help me. See, I really wish we understood this, loved ones, that God knows even the thoughts of our head and that God wants to give us relief from the thoughts in our head. See, the fact is this is everywhere in the Word of God. Very few of us today need special revelation from God about the reality of our own particular thoughts. His word tells us so much about our thought life. We need to accept, though, and believe and obey what God has already told us in his word. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be angry. Renew your mind. Transform your mind. Think on things that are pure and right and peaceful. Take every thought captive. Get rid of bitterness, envy, greed. Guard your heart because out of it flow all kinds of evil. Loved ones, God has made known to you your thoughts. But he has also told us how to deal with those thoughts. 
Do we believe that? And so through Daniel, God gave Nebuchadnezzar not only knowledge about what would come years down the road, hundreds of years down the road, but also helped him realize that God even knew the very thoughts in his head. Come to verses 31 to 45, and it's the dream and its interpretation. I know maybe some of you are hoping, well, this is where Paul's going to camp for two weeks now and tell us everything that this means, and I'm not. I'm not going to really tell you much more than the text says here. There is a dream. It's quite simple. Two parts. There's a statue and there's a stone. The statue is a tall statue. It's a bright statue, and it seems to be a hideous statue. It's described from head to toe in four made parts, a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, a middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Great similarity with what's coming in chapter 7. And there's a stone. A stone that comes out of nowhere, so to speak, cut out of a mountain, not by human hands, that destroyed the statue from the bottom up, essentially pulverizing it into non-existence so that such it became like chaff in the wind. That's like dust in the wind, essentially. This kingdom or this stone that grew into a mighty kingdom destroyed the statue completely. What's the interpretation? Rather shockingly, Nebuchadnezzar's dream actually depicts God's plan for the future of the world. Stunning, is it not? We think that as Christians, we have a corner on the market of God. But here is God revealing to a pagan king what the future of the world would be. Four parts to the idol represent four successive earthly kingdoms. Each has a best by date. In other words, each of them will be destroyed or end. The first kingdom, the head, is Babylon. It was the greatest of all the four kingdoms. All that Nebuchadnezzar has, it says, was given to him by the God of heaven. The only reason he was on the throne was because the God had placed him there. The second kingdom, and notice the next two kingdoms are said with just a few words. The next two kingdoms, I believe the second kingdom is the Medo-Persian kingdom. The third kingdom is the Greek kingdom under Alexander the Great. And it says that it conquered the world. And I, I read somewhere this past couple weeks that um, there was a point when uh, Alexander the Great, in his late 20s was crying because there were no more kingdoms for him to conquer. Stunning that a young man of that age had conquered the then known world. And the fourth kingdom, as I see it, is Rome. It was an expansive kingdom. It was a powerful kingdom, but it was a divided kingdom, and it eventually disappeared. It was a kingdom that combined massive strength with disturbing weakness. It had crushing power, and it had failing cohesion. And what a shaky base this whole lot of kingdoms really are built on. And stop for a moment, because we're not meant to get lost in the details. What we're meant to understand here, and what God is showing Nebuchadnezzar, was the big picture of world history, is a survival manual for the people of God. He's showing the king what will come, what is to be, what is to be in the latter days. And it's astonishingly accurate. That God could, through a man in the 5th century, 6th century B.C., reveal what would happen for the next four or 500 years. And then he says there will be a final kingdom, a stone and a kingdom that will grow and be everlasting. What is the stone? The stone is Jesus Christ. The stone is Jesus Christ. And the kingdom is the kingdom of God. 
And the reference is here clearly, I believe, not to the second coming of Christ, but to the incarnation, the life, and the death of Jesus Christ that happened in the Roman Empire. During that Roman Empire, Christ came. The stone came out of nowhere, sent from heaven. And that in Christ now, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. And the kingdom of heaven will destroy every human kingdom that is, has been and is yet to come. This is an amazing thought. If you go and read the Gospels, you will find reference after reference to the kingdom of God. If you begin to read through the book of Acts, you will find that that is what we are to teach. That is what we are to proclaim, the kingdom of God. When Christ came, he said, the kingdom of God is now in your midst. He came preaching the kingdom of God. What he's saying is the fulfillment of Daniel. And so it should tell us then, what are we to seek? There's a huge lesson here for us. Are we to seek the kingdom of God? Or are we to seek the kingdom of man? What is to be the priority in our life? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things, the things of the world, will be added to you. There's an emphasis that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, you are people that live in Babylon. You are people that live in the world. But understand that every human kingdom has a best by date. The only kingdom that will not end, the only kingdom that will last forever, is the kingdom of God. Which kingdom are you in? Which kingdom are you contributing to? Which kingdom are you seeking after? Which kingdom gets your resources? Which kingdom gets your time? It's a reminder to us of what will last and what will not last. And so, he says this final kingdom is the kingdom of God and at its heart is Christ, the stone that crushes all other kingdoms. So, loved ones, if you get this, I believe your whole view of the world will change. If you really understand this, how you read the news, how you listen to the news, how you pattern your life, how you direct your life, how you respond to the rise and fall of political powers and political change, no matter how ironish it might be in your life and in your world, it is all fleeting, and so don't be afraid of it. And Daniel 2 as much says to us, look it square in the eye and repeat after Jesus. You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. That is what Daniel 2 is showing us and teaching us. On the other hand, every human kingdom is destined to fail. So what do we learn? God gives every human kingdom its power and its glory. That's what Daniel says. O king, you have received from God power over men, animals, the world. Every earthly kingdom, though, has an after this. You see them, they're all dead. Hitler, Idi Amin, all these men that we've feared and that have caused tremendous destruction, they're all dead. But Christ is alive, and the kingdom of God is still progressing. Notice kingdoms get progressively worse from gold to silver to bronze to iron to clay. They also get progressively more evil, it seems. But the kingdom of God, on the other hand, is established by God. It's indestructible. It's unstoppable. It's universal. It's eternal. Again, which kingdom are you a part of? And finally, how do you spell relief? 
These last verses from 46 to 49 are very helpful. When you are troubled and anxious beyond all imagination, I don't care who you are, you just want relief. And some people will do anything to get relief. They will spend any amount of money, see any number of people, try any number of remedies to get relief. The king finally found relief, and what does he do? He falls down and he worships Daniel, and he says, make an offering and incense to Daniel. And we think, whoa. And that word is worship. It's used 11 times in chapter 3, every one of those in the context of worshiping the idol that Nebuchadnezzar is about to build. But what it is showing us is the relief that the king experienced at the word that Daniel had gave him about the interpretation of his dream um, and the dream itself. The truth is, loved ones, that God can bring incredible relief to the troubled and the anxious heart. How do you spell relief? G O. And I wish I had more of this confidence, and I pray that God will give it to me, and he'll give it to you. Again, when we are in this world, and we live in Babylon, and we are surrounded by people who will pay extraordinary amounts of money to find peace and relief, and we have the answer in God. Augustine said thousand or hundred thousands of years ago, the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in God. The final point, Daniel and his buddies are promoted. And they roll up their sleeves and they get to work in the kingdom of man. We need to learn a lesson from this, loved ones. Because the Bible has hints um, along the way that when people have hope and when they understand that God is coming back and that God is in control, they withdraw from the world, they stop working, they become lazy, and they just say, well, what should I, why should I do anything? Because God wins and God's coming back. You get none of that in Daniel. What it really says is that Daniel and his three buddies dove in head first, hands and feet, into serving the human kingdom even though they knew that that kingdom was a temporary kingdom and that ultimately God's kingdom will last. I think there's a lesson for you and I here about this. We do know that God is coming back. We do know that God's kingdom is growing and expanding. We do know that it's an eternal kingdom. But until that day, we roll up our sleeves and we dive in to the human world around us and allow God to work through us to bring answers and relief to those who are troubled in their hearts because there is no human answer to their problem. May God help us as we live in Babylon to put our confidence in the eternal kingdom and not in the failing kingdoms of men. Father, we thank you for our time in your word today. Would you help us this week, I pray? To be confident that you are a God who not only has revealed yourself, but continues to reveal yourself. And to put our confidence firmly in the kingdom of God that is eternal and not the kingdom of man that is temporal. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.